Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Think Twice. My name is Ev, and I will be your host for the season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in nervous system disorders. And I'm Elena, also a PhD student in neuroscience at Queen's. My research focuses on exploring eating behavior and mood disorders and novel tools for treatment such as psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. Along with some other amazing grad students, we've put together a podcast series as part of an outreach program with the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's. The podcast is entirely student-run and researched. We'll be tackling a variety of topics related to cutting-edge research or controversies in the field of neuroscience. Our goal is to take you past the headlines and make you think twice about mainstream media topics related to the brain and human behavior. We'll talk to actual researchers and do our best to bring more nuance and rigor to neuroscience coverage. We're new to this, so please give us feedback. You can reach us at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. For our first episode, we'll be taking a look at the hype behind psychedelic drugs and their application to psychotherapy. We also sat down with Queen's own Dr. Ron Shore to discuss the subject. You know, I think I think it's dangerous. Um, I think that there are fake shamans all over the Amazon now, giving people ayahuasca trips. I think people have to be really careful if they're thinking of doing something like that. Within five years, psilocybin and MDMA will be uh, drugs that doctors can prescribe. Psychiatrist Dr. Ishrat Hussain isn't so sure. I don't think at this moment that we can say for certain that psilocybin is safe and effective. Uh, for depression or any other mental health condition. Uh, There is encouraging evidence that it could be safe and effective, but nothing conclusive at present. There will be more on their way. We have a lot more research, a lot more work to do in understanding the science. Researchers in British Columbia are experimenting with the use of magic mushrooms to treat patients with depression and anxiety. In the city of Vancouver, buying magic mushrooms can be as easy as ordering your morning cup of coffee. We should keep an open mind to this. This is not about drugging yourself because Microdosing LSD is being done right now, a lot of it in the West Coast with engineers. And they're getting, you know, I'm not endorsing it because it's illegal, but they're doing it for a reason. They're not hallucinating, they're sharper at work is what they claim. If you grew up in the 90s in Canada, you grew up in the era of just say no. Publicly funded education programs like D.A.R.E. taught children what to do when they encountered illegal drugs of any kind. Recognize, resist, and report. Despite D.A.R.E.'s $1 to $1.3 billion budget, a 1999 study confirmed that D.A.R.E. was ineffective in keeping kids away from drugs at best and may actually have been counterproductive. There's been a huge shift in public opinion on drugs in Canada recently. Cannabis has now been legal for five years and recreational use has increased substantially in most age groups. Not only is there a steep rise in the social acceptability of cannabis, slogans like dares and videos like this is your brain on drugs are now considered outdated and, let's be honest, downright cheesy. Today, psychedelic drugs like psilocybin and MDMA are still illegal, but everywhere you look, there are signs these drugs may not be far behind cannabis in the journey to legalization. It seems like every week a new study comes out claiming to show a positive impact of psychedelics for patients with a variety of disorders like treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, or even substance use. 
It's not just clinical researchers that are excited. In both Canada and the U.S., investors are betting big on psychedelics. Dozens of psychedelic companies have cropped up recently. Some are racing to develop and patent new psychedelic drugs, and others are planning to offer psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, or PAP, as their main product. These aren't niche businesses either. One company called Compass Pathways has a market cap of $406 million, and a recent estimate projected that by 2027, the medical psychedelics market will be worth over $6.8 billion. Psychedelic hype has now reached the mainstream. Psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, or PAP, regularly makes national headlines. Netflix docuseries like Have a Good Trip and Fantastic Fungi are super popular, and psychedelic influencers are sharing content with millions of people. On top of that, magic mushroom dispensaries are opening up in cities like Toronto and Vancouver, selling illegal drugs in plain sight. Whether or not you believe the hype, It seems like we're approaching a critical point for drug legislation in Canada. BC is decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of all illicit drugs in January of 2023. Even more locally, Kingston has called for the decriminalization of illicit drugs. In today's episode, we're going to cut through the noise and answer the question that nobody seems to be asking. Are we ready for therapeutic psychedelics in Canada? Before we get into the state of psychedelics at the moment and all the controversies that go with it, let's get the basics out of the way. Elena, you've done some research on psychedelics and went down a rabbit hole on this topic. Could you start by explaining to everyone what psychedelics are and how they're being used therapeutically? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite the rabbit hole for sure. So psychedelics are a class of hallucinogenic drugs that are famous for their so-called mind-altering or reality-distorting effects. They are generally classified into subgroups based on their mechanism of action, including dissociative drugs like ketamine, the classic psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin, and empathogens like MDMA, also known as ecstasy. Most of these substances are Schedule 3 in Canada and Schedule 1 in the U.S., which basically means they're illicit drugs with limited legal access. The unique part about psychedelics is both their short-term effects, such as perceptual distortions and mood changes, as well as their long-term effects on personality and psychological well-being. These observed changes have created a draw to study these drugs for mental illnesses like depression or PTSD. There are some risks, of course, to consider. Although the safety profile of psychedelics is quite good, we'll get more into the specifics of these risks and other controversies a bit later, but there definitely are some significant ones to discuss. The basic overarching idea, though, is that psychedelics promote a state of openness and an increased sense of connectedness and insight into one's mind, thoughts, and feelings. And this is the basis for the promise of these substances to promote long-term changes for people struggling with mental health. They sound like really powerful drugs. Seems like in TV shows and movies, people just use these drugs to distort their realities and just kind of trip out. My understanding is that these drugs can potentially be effective for mental health. I'm curious about how they work exactly. Do we know like what their mechanism is? It's not actually that simple. Although their effects can be quite exciting, we still don't actually entirely know what's going on in your brain on these drugs. Some research points to changes in neuroplasticity, and fMRI studies show interesting changes in activation patterns, but more work is definitely needed here to discover the underlying effects fully. Yeah, that's the thing. I know that you don't have to entirely know how a drug works to study it clinically, but shouldn't there be some sort of indication of how it works before conducting a full clinical trial on it? Like, where is the place for psychedelics in medicine? 
Yeah, basically psychedelics are being studied and used to enhance therapy, so termed psychedelic-assisted therapy, or PAP. The goal is to hopefully produce positive outcomes in people that may not have benefited from just therapy alone, which is a substantial amount of people. In this way, psychedelics act like an amplifier or a catalyst to standard treatment, similar to how certain medications like SSRIs or mood stabilizers amplify treatment. Only the difference here is you may only need as little as a single dose to produce the therapeutic effect, opposed to a chronic administration that is necessary with most other drug medications. Okay, so it acts as a sort of therapeutic enhancer. That's very interesting, and I guess it would be pretty helpful for people who aren't getting good results from therapy. So I guess the big question now is, do psychedelics actually work well in this kind of format? What results have we seen so far with mental health issues? Well, it's hard to give a definite answer. So far, a lot of positive therapeutic outcomes have been reported, but there are many different approaches being investigated, and there are major limitations to these studies, which I think is important to touch on as well. In terms of specific conditions, improvements in substance use disorders have been observed, including psilocybin for tobacco use, LSD for alcohol use, and ketamine for cocaine use disorders. Other studies suggest that psilocybin is safe, tolerable, and effective in treating depressive symptoms with sustained therapeutic effects that can last up to six months, which is quite an astounding result. PAP has also been studied to treat PTSD and distress or anxiety associated with terminal illnesses like cancer. Okay, so there's a lot going on with research right now, and there seems to be quite a few disorders being investigated. Are there any large studies going on right now that I should know about? Yeah, so the research has exploded for sure. I would say the biggest PAP study so far is a pair of phase three clinical trials assessing the safety and efficacy of MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. These trials were run by a public benefit corporation called MAPS, so the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and these studies included nearly 200 participants. The second trial was actually just completed, so that means that the FDA will be evaluating the treatment in the very near future. So yeah, it'll be exciting to see what happens with that next. That's actually a lot of participants. Hopefully with those kinds of numbers, there's going to be some decent data as a result of that study. You mentioned the research has exploded recently, but why is this happening now? Is it true that the research was delayed by political issues in the 20th century? Yeah, so as I'm sure a lot of you are aware, psychedelics underwent a huge prohibition in the 1960s and 70s when the war on drugs was at its height. This halted most research efforts for about 40 years. Only in the last few decades have we been able to resume research on these substances to try and figure out what their mechanism of action really is. Queen's is actually quite involved in the field as well. We've got the Psychedelic Science Advisory Committee here, the Psychedelic Research Initiatives, and collaborations with Dimensions, which is a company that is developing for-profit psychedelic-assisted wellness retreats. We've even got a course for undergraduate students, The Science of Psychedelics, taught by Dr. Eric Dumont, who's contributed a lot to this movement at Queen's as well. There's also a growing psychedelic community in the Kingston area, with some really kind and forward-thinking people that I'm glad to have had the opportunity to meet. I think there will be some exciting stuff happening close to home over the next while, especially with this podcast. We're hoping to create an open dialogue and discuss these topics, which can be quite complex in a way that's accessible and also pretty easy to understand. What a fun format to talk about some interesting topics in science that are applicable to all. Yeah, absolutely. I think this podcast will be great. It'll be a great way to involve the community and spread awareness for some important topics. It's kind of wild to see how much psychedelic research has exploded in the recent years. There's so much interest in studying these drugs and so many aspects to discuss, really. This brings me to introduce a very special guest for today's podcast, who we think will be a great addition to this discussion. 
Ronshore is a research scientist with Queen's Health Sciences and postdoctoral fellow in public health sciences at Queen's University. Ron taught drug studies and psychedelics at both Queen's University and University of Ottawa over a 15-year period and spent 23 years in frontline harm reduction, community, and public health. He has a vast expertise in the space of psychedelics research. We're going to release the full interview as a separate episode, but we've included some snippets throughout this one to help supplement our discussion today. It's wild to think that these substances may have the potential to introduce some widespread positive changes in mental health care. But besides the substance itself, is anything actually different about the therapeutic process? Yeah, definitely. And these are very important details about the process to consider. There's a few components unique to PAP that you won't see in standard therapy, but it does follow a similar format, although it might differ slightly depending on the substance. For example, talk therapy is more common for substances like ketamine and MDMA, whereas some believe it's not as useful in the case of LSD and psilocybin psychotherapy. I also chatted with Ron about this. Now that we got the basics covered, let's talk about some of the current clinical trials happening in Canada. Elena, can you tell us more about this? Yeah, there's tons of trials happening right now in Canada and other countries around the world. But first, a little fun fact. So the term psychedelic was actually first coined in Saskatchewan by psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond in 1957. He was involved in a lot of early research using LSD at a mental hospital in Weyburn, Saskatchewan. So Canada can definitely be considered a long-standing hotspot for psychedelic research. But back to present day, the government is currently accepting applications for a funding opportunity of $3 million in which they'll fund three grants for research investigating the use of psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy for substance use disorders, depression, and end-of-life psychological distress in cancer. However, there are a few clinical trials already happening. For example, trials using MDMA for PTSD are happening in Toronto and BC. As well, many are happening in the US, including a randomized double-blind study of a single dose of psilocybin for depression, which is expected to conclude quite soon, actually. Another study at John Hopkins University is expected to conclude in 2026, investigating psilocybin for the treatment of depression with co-occurring alcohol use disorder, so an application to comorbid diagnoses, which is quite interesting. In the UK, there's also a study of anorexia nervosa at Imperial College London, and these are just a few examples of the many ongoing investigations using psychedelics and therapy for a wide range of mental illnesses. A rapid review was actually just published by researchers at Queen's outlining the current state of psychedelic research and implications for certain disorders, so we'll link it to this episode for everyone listening as it's a super useful resource for anyone who wants to learn more from an up-to-date and credible source. Yeah, that's great. It's interesting to me that these substances are being applied to a wide variety of disorders, kind of like cannabis was just before it became legal in Canada. There was research on so many different therapeutic purposes for cannabis, and now it's psychedelics' turn. But what actually makes us believe they could be beneficial for so many different disorders? I also asked Ron his opinion on the subject. And much like, you know, from a regulatory perspective, a drug is usually authorized for use with a particular disorder. But with psychedelics, you have so many disorders that they have possible therapeutic efficacy for. And and the more literature comes out, the more that's really established as being true. It's shown efficacy with for probably a range of probably nine, ten different disorders now, just psilocybin alone. Now, are those disorders somehow connected underneath? Is there a continuum of human consciousness? And these are all just flowering expressions of common patterns and the diagnostics aren't really as separate. That's one possibility. Or the other is that these psychedelics have a very general salutary effect, which is they benefit the functioning of the organism, its interaction with the environment and its self-regulation on the whole. So no matter what we're dealing with, we're going to be better able to deal with it. I think that's true. And, you know, so the transdiagnostic potential then would really change our notion of mental health too. 
you know, like how are we understanding these things? If we can look at one intervention having benefit on a number of different disorders, what does that tell us about psychiatry today? So, you know, we're still learning these things, but there's no doubt the trans diagnostic efficacy is one of the unique things about psychedelics. I personally think this is actually one of the most fascinating parts about the use of psychedelics. So their trans diagnostic effects or their ability to benefit so many different diagnoses, just like Ron touched on. As most are aware, we're in the midst of a mental health crisis, which was severely worsened by the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the WHO, there's actually been a 25% increase in the prevalence of worldwide anxiety and depression. Even before COVID, there was a lack of mental health resources, and now there's an even larger gap in effective treatments. So it's thought that psychedelic therapy may represent another tool for this field. The research suggests psychedelics have broad therapeutic effects by relieving dysfunctional patterns of cognition and behavior, but still, we don't have a complete idea of how they work. Regardless, we are seeing some benefit for PAP for multiple mental illnesses already, which is exciting and definitely worth exploring further. However, at the same time, it may not necessarily fix all the issues in the mental health care system, like the lack of therapists, lack of funding, and inequality in access, which are still big problems that need a solution ASAP. It seems like the transdiagnostic benefit would be really game-changing for the field of psychiatry. And with the research evolving so rapidly, a lot of what we're discussing right now might actually be obsolete by the time that this episode actually gets released. <laughs> Hopefully not. But for the time being, what kind of psychedelics are actually available in Canada right now? Yeah, definitely the field is evolving so fast. That's something we were chatting with Ron about in the interview. A lot of the information in this episode might be irrelevant in a year or so. So maybe we'll do a future episode updating you guys on things at that time. Mm -hmm. But currently, ketamine is actually legal for therapeutic use in Canada. It's been used as an anesthetic for pain for a while now, which makes it much easier for it to be transitioned to use in psychotherapy. So with a referral from your doctor, you can actually receive this therapy already at companies like Field Trip in Toronto. I believe there's even a company known as Mindbloom in the U.S. where you can get a package in the mail with your psychedelic substance and you take it in the presence of a clinician over teleconference. Similar telemedicine services are popping up, but obviously this is pretty questionable in terms of the level of support and expertise they're providing. Like, what happens if things go downhill for you during the experience or the Wi-Fi cuts out or something? I'm not sure your roommate would have the medical training necessary to help you out. The founder of the Ketamine Training Center gave the following quote when he was asked why he didn't want to be affiliated with Mindbloom. He said, the program to me has no adequate supervision. You're giving out medicine to people with minimal intake, minimal knowledge of people, minimal supervision, minimal feedback, and minimal connection. I would agree with that, and it seems a bit early in the field of psychedelics for these kinds of online platforms, especially considering how important set and setting is, and how these factors are very difficult to control when the therapy is being conducted virtually. Yeah, that does seem wild to me that you can just order PAP online, like you'd order any product from an online store or like a meal from a <laughs> restaurant or something. Thing. Is it also that easy with like other psychedelic drugs? I'm not aware of any other online stores for PAP other than ketamine, but there are definitely ways you can purchase various psychedelics like psilocybin or LSD through unregulated platforms. Things are beginning to be regulated though, right? I suspect it won't be long before people can actually get access to those substances legally. Yeah, regulation is beginning to happen. Just this year, actually, Canada made amendments to the Special Access Program, which essentially allows practitioners to request access to illicit or unavailable available drugs in Canada and use them to treat patients with severe conditions that have failed to respond to conventional treatments. Physicians can now request psilocybin, MDMA, even DMT and LSD for their patients through this program. 
There's also Section 56 of Canada's Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, which basically decriminalizes the possession of a controlled substance in a specific case, such as for medical or scientific purposes. In the case of psilocybin-assisted therapy, exemptions are being granted on a case-by-case basis, so this can basically protect them and their therapists from getting into any legal trouble due to the possession of an illicit substance. Alberta will also begin to regulate psychedelic therapy for medical use in January of 2023. Those are pretty exciting changes. It really seems like there's a whole industry just emerging from these substances. Yeah, for sure. Companies and nonprofits are also quite eager to get things rolling. So Theracil is a nonprofit organization, and they even filed a lawsuit against the government of Canada for access to psychedelic-assisted therapy, particularly in the context of -of end-of-life distress. You know, when we talk about psychedelics, of course, it can be used in a clinical context for some, but definitely not for all. What about people that don't struggle with mental illness? Is there a place for psychedelics to be used as a form of personal growth or just recreationally? Here's what Ron had to say. I think one of the things we need to do is be less insistent on these false divisions between people or between experiences, which means the division between healthy and unhealthy, like, I'm not sure where that starts. When do people start to become unhealthy? Like, I know there are things that I do in my daily life that are probably unhealthy, but I do them overall, I'm healthy. So I think we're always on this continuum of ill health or health, and it's not to say that ill health isn't real and suffering isn't real, I'm not saying that. But I think that there's a clear applicability in terms of just overall health and wellness for a couple different reasons. One is, just get back to basic functions of the organism, back to biology. What are we? What we exist in the world? What is the human? How do we work? And what we find is that psilocybin just sharpens all that. Because you're less conditioned by your past experiences, you're more present. It really relaxes fear conditioning and it attenuates past conditioning around chronic stress. So it rescues deficits of chronic stress. We all have this big allostatic load where it's under so much stress. Psilocybin just brings a little bit of sparkle and your posture back in a way and your brightness back and you're able to cope better. You're less fearful. You're a little less dictated by past habits. So you have a little more freedom and your mood is a little better. So who couldn't benefit from all those? When you look at the traditional anthropological literature or the traditions of plant medicine, they would be done in group rituals in settings with anyone in the community as a form of cultural belonging and cultural connection but they would also be used for healing. So it's almost like there's two applications. Even Aztec communities used a lot of mushrooms in social celebrations. And so there's a clear applicability of psychedelics just in terms of sociability, right? And that low doses kind of make people move a little more, make people a little more interactive. And so mushrooms at a lower dose can do that. At a higher dose, you're in this kind of big internal journey. And that was generally reserved when people wanted healing. So don't go into that big space unless you want to learn something about yourself that's going to heal you. So that's my only proviso is, you know, I think it's good to just help and help the organism be more healthy and more functional and responsive. And I really think that so much of it has to do with the reset of, of your neurological connectivity. You know, I thought of calling my model the limbic learning model because psilocybin just improves your limbic learning. You're more midbrain, you're more cortex, you're less responsive in the amygdala, you're less prefrontal cortex rumination, you're more integrated with your sensory environment. And that's why people report feeling more relational to nature, that more connected with each other. Relationships matter. And in today's world, those sound like things we could all benefit from. Okay, so this is happening soon. And there seems to be a lot of legal changes related to the field. Is the research really solid enough to warrant that at this time? Elena, you mentioned before that we still know very little about these substances. And there are some risks. Is it safe to proceed with 
with legalization just yet? The research is very promising, but yeah, there are definitely some limitations that we need to consider. One of the main challenges is that it's extremely difficult to achieve proper blinding in these clinical trials. In a high-quality clinical trial, typically participants are randomly assigned to either a placebo control group or an active drug group without knowing which group they're in. So this helps to limit any expectations or biases about the drug taken. However, psychedelics can be quite obvious due to their perceptual effects like hallucinations, so that's a bit of a dead giveaway. Some studies have tried to overcome this by implementing designs in which both groups take substances at varying dosages, but that's still not ideal. Another limitation is that most of these studies are quite small, so anywhere from 4 up to 100 participants, and not very racially diverse, which is a major concern both ethically and scientifically. The amount of time and money that it takes to conduct psychedelic-assisted therapy is another challenge which might explain why the sample sizes are so small. But we really do need larger trials with a patient population that's generalizable so we can actually be confident that it's having a beneficial effect when it's brought into the real world. Yeah, I can also imagine there aren't that many people willing to participate in psychedelic studies, especially considering like the negative stigma and fears of a bad trip. And to be fair, it is illegal. Yep, that's true. <laughs> and people definitely have the right to be scared here. It can be an unpredictable process. Another important issue I've come across is actually the safety measures for research participants and patients. But I thought you said earlier that psychedelics had a pretty high safety profile. So what makes safety a concern in these trials? That's partially true. The lethal dose of psilocybin is so high that it's practically impossible to overdose. And MDMA isn't very toxic either. Toxic overdosing is not a concern, especially in a controlled clinical setting. However, that's not to say that negative side effects can't occur. One of the most common is something known as transient anxiety, which along with changes in heart rate and blood pressure can make you feel distressed, uneasy, or anxious. And these feelings can be further worsened by the perceived distortions in reality that the patient experiences. But the real risk with PAP is the state of psychological vulnerability that patients are subjected to. Psychedelics change the way you think and perceive the world. There's evidence showing that patients on psychedelics tend to be more open and agreeable, and MDMA is widely known to impact desire for emotional and social intimacy. Both drugs can significantly acutely alter your perceptions of reality and ability to communicate and maintain social boundaries. So in theory, they are safe, but psychedelics can enhance vulnerability, which is obviously a little bit problematic. Ron also brought up some important points about the aspect of psychological vulnerability. But the bigger safety risk that people become more aware of in the last couple of years is the risk of therapist abuse. And that is because people are so susceptible and so vulnerable in the psychedelic state, they're not really able to consent in any way. Now, MDMA is a much different experience than psilocybin. MDMA, if people have experienced it, is a lot of love and there's a lot of touchiness to it. So if you have therapists then who think it's okay to hold people, there are schools of psychotherapy that think you should hold someone as if they're a child because they've lost that nurturing early on and you're replacing it as a therapist. I take great affront to that. Some of the schools of psychotherapy have very problematic approaches and some of those problematic approaches have been ingrained in psychedelic assisted therapy since it started in the 60s and 70s. So some of the bigger names in the field, including MAPS, you know, which is the biggest you know, psychedelic kind of organization in the world, a couple of their therapists in Canada have been found to be abusive towards their clients, including sexual abuse. There were three MAPS trials in Canada that were recently shut down for lack of safety concern and lack of proper oversight. And, you know, two people in a room at a minimum at all times you know, just making sure that, you know, people are well informed and realizing their vulnerability going in. I really like group ritual. 
I think group ritual can really reduce the possibilities of abuse. It doesn't mean abuse hasn't happened in ayahuasca settings because it really has because you have power dynamics with shamanism. So that's a whole other thing. So it's the dirty little secret of psychedelics. We do have an abuse problem, but I'd say that's widespread in society and this is an opportunity for us to fix it and overcome it. And protecting people who are vulnerable is just the number one thing. And knowing why we're in it, you know, as a therapist, it's not about you. We're not in it to heal people. You know, we're there just trying to offer people, you know, an opportunity for them to heal themselves. Because part of what psychedelics do is they just kind of, you, you realize so much about your inner world and you realize that a lot of your well-being and your sense of kind of help can come from internal sources. So I don't think we want to, you know, kind of discourage that for people. It's a tough one, though. Even without the drugs, people who are seeking treatment for things like PTSD or depression are already super vulnerable, as we discussed with Ron. From what you're saying, it seems like this vulnerability is only amplified once PAP is introduced. Sounds kind of dangerous. Yeah, it definitely can be, and current PAP trials don't really offer any long-term support for patients. After undergoing such a personal experience that people sometimes describe as life-changing or profound, there are very few resources to follow up or monitor patients after their drug sessions have ended. For example, some participants in a MAPS trial were quoted saying that follow-up sessions ended way too soon, and it was overall detrimental to their recovery. Sounds to me like long-term resources for people undergoing PAP should be mandatory, like they are in other clinical trials. But what I wonder about the most is the idea of informed consent. It's a pretty fundamental concept and standard practice in all research involving humans. How do researchers go about this with psychedelics? How do you describe such a profound experience that we know so little about to someone to get their informed consent? And we know that consent is something that evolves over time, which is why subjects can withdraw from clinical trials at any point in time. But in this case, once subjects have started the therapy, can they really still give consent? This is actually one of the most difficult ethical concerns to provide a solution for. How can it be possible to fully inform participants of the psychedelic experience when it's often so ineffable and difficult to describe, let alone highly subjective between individuals? PAP has unique risks that aren't there in standard therapy, so there is a need for better practice or enhanced guidelines for informed consent. This would ideally include providing adequate information to the client to make sure they're informed in their decision to participate, such as what PAP entails, benefits and risks, the long-lasting impact it may have on them, and alternative options so they don't feel that they have no other choice. The participant should also be informed of what the psychedelic experience could entail. So some examples of potential experiences so they can get a sense of what's in the realm of possibility. It's also important to let the participant know that limited studies have been conducted using PAP and there are limitations to the knowledge on these methods. I can't imagine what it's like to be the participant, regardless of if you've done psychedelics before. You really don't know what you're getting yourself into. You don't even know what could go wrong or what could go right. You're placing a lot of trust in the people around you when you decide to do something like this. 100%. Unfortunately, there have been some pretty serious cases of ethical misconduct during PAP sessions, and this psychological vulnerability is not always considered. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of early experimentation with PAP was conducted by the so-called underground psychedelics community. While some of this work was important, there are many documented cases of sexual abuse during psychedelic therapy throughout the 70s and 80s. Unfortunately, I'm not all that surprised. I guess a lot of early underground therapy was illegal and happened without much oversight. You know, hopefully a lot has changed since that time. Oh yeah, it was definitely unregulated and would often happen in super remote settings. There was actually this circle of people known as the Boston Group, which included a chemist, some people interested in spiritual development, and some other people associated with the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab. They were basically synthesizing MDMA and distributing it around in the Boston area beginning in 1976. Kind of off topic, but yeah, they were really not regulated at all during that time. 
I imagine a lot has changed since that time, though. Well, yes and no. MDMA was even legal in the 70s and early 80s, although highly unregulated, so it was essentially above ground, and still there were some serious ethical violations that occurred with established therapists in the field. As the field becomes more legit today, safety standards have definitely improved. For example, almost all PAP now happens in the presence of a pair of therapists, so one male and one female, which is supposed to help minimize the risk of any kind of sexual misconduct, although I don't know if there is firm evidence yet to prove if it actually works better or not. Unfortunately, allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct are still being leveled today, and some have even implicated people who are considered leaders in the emerging field. That's absolutely horrible. You mean that this is still happening now? Remember the phase three clinical trial I mentioned earlier? The big international study showing positive effects of MDMA for PTSD? There are actually several widely publicized allegations of misconduct that have been made by participants of that clinical trial. In a clinical trial? Yeah, and the most serious sexual misconduct is alleged to have happened in supervised videotaped sessions in Vancouver in 2015. This actually triggered a Health Canada review of all clinical trials involving MDMA just a few months ago. It's actually mind-blowing that something like that could have ever happened in a modern clinical trial. It's really sad. You would think that people conducting these experiments would have a pretty deep understanding of the impact of their misconducts on the subjects. And even if they don't, wouldn't they be in, like, huge trouble? What's being done to prevent that from happening ever again? Unfortunately, due to the prohibition, psychedelic therapy has been conducted underground for a long time, and we're still learning how it can be conducted safely with minimal risks in modern clinical settings. Although psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers have their own licensing boards, there isn't a specialized equivalent for psychedelic therapists. Some researchers are now calling for the creation of an independent credentialing council, specifically responsible for licensing people who work with psychedelics. And others are pushing for the field to adopt a universal code of ethics, outlining appropriate behavior and safest practices. It really seems like it should be the bare minimum if PAP is going to be widely used. You would think so. It seems like things are moving in that direction, but I still wonder about how psychedelic guides are being licensed and regulated. I actually chatted about this with Ron too. People would be bound by their own colleges. So psychologists by their college, psychiatrists by their colleges, physicians by theirs, nurse practitioners, but nothing specific to psychedelic practitioners. This is an interesting area of debate. And I actually teach at the Nikea Foundation, has a foundations of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy program. So I taught their psilocybin module this fall for them. And that was like 17 therapists all. And they were really clear. We're not training people and we're not certifying them in psychedelic assisted therapy. We're teaching them the foundations and what they do is kind of up to them. So I think that's the best way to do it. There are a lot of people certifying people. I know who people have been certified in psychedelic assisted therapy by doing an online course that or I didn't even do all of and they got certified. So you have to be careful with these claims of certification. There's no overall overarching regulatory body. And this is going to be one of the regulatory challenges that comes up. You know, and it's funny because as much as we love the neuroscience and the psychology and the mysticism of psychedelics, the people who rule the psychedelic space now are the policy nerds. People who are trying to figure out from a regulatory perspective, where do we put this? What do we do? with psychedelics and those people who are like policy analysts or really good at regulatory stuff, which is kind of nerdy, is really an important time right now in psychedelics because it's going to dictate access. From the start of our discussion today, we've been talking about psychedelics as though they were some kind of new shiny therapy. But from my understanding, these substances have been used by indigenous communities for a very long time. Yes, psychedelics have been used for medicinal purposes for a long, long time. 
Many psychedelics were introduced to Western society by indigenous people who have been using them for thousands of years. For example, famously, Maria Sabina, a mastic healer from Mexico, used psilocybin in sacred ceremonies, later sharing them with white people who ended up profiting off psilocybin as a form of drug tourism. This makes it even more unacceptable that psychedelic studies and associated leadership positions include limited indigenous and black representation. PAP and psychedelic research is definitely a white-dominant field at the moment, with indigenous and people of color being being highly underrepresented as researchers, clinicians, and participants in the studies. So really, psychedelics are far from a new shiny discovery if communities have been using them for thousands of years. Yeah, exactly. There are many issues with this to consider. Essential psychedelic rituals of the Maztec people in Mexico became public in 1957, in which for-profit ventures skyrocketed. These ventures, which are based on intellectual property of the Maztec people, can contribute to intergenerational distress and suffering in these communities. No one has yet to fairly or adequately address this issue, and it's so important important to do so. Reciprocity is essential to move forward, yet it's not often considered in medicine and certainly not in industry. Yeah, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed moving forward. There's also a lot we can learn from these communities while also recognizing and respecting their longstanding use and knowledge of psychedelics. Yeah, beneficial outcomes of ceremonial psychedelic use have been repeatedly demonstrated, and these communities have already been doing this for thousands of years, so there's definitely a lot we can learn here while also respecting the origins of these medicines. Lived experience is so valuable to the study of psychedelics. It seems like there are a lot of areas for improvement in the field of psychedelics, and I imagine there are many more that we haven't touched on. What else do you think is needed for future research? Well, another important consideration moving forward with the field is the need for more observational or naturalistic studies, which look at the outcomes of psychedelic use after things like retreats or recreational use stories. This was actually also described in the rapid review I mentioned earlier and can be just as valuable to the literature as clinical trials are. Another future direction is evaluating microdosing, a field of study which is vast and growing, but also controversial. Although expectancy and placebo effects definitely play a role here, more research is needed to determine the neurobiological effects of microdosing and how this may relate to the positive effects that are being observed. This whole field of psychedelics seems to have exploded kind of out of nowhere and created a ton of interesting avenues for future research, which is really great. This is one thing I've never been able to wrap my mind around, why people think that psychedelics are somehow going to make money. And I've consulted with private clinics. I've done a lot of work in the industry and, you know, obviously I research this for a living and it's got terrific clinical application and benefit, but it's not a daily prescription like an antidepressant would be. So there's going to be no money in, in the pharmacological side. Plus these are natural medicines. They should not be patented. And a natural molecule is always superior to a synthetic. I think for the most part, people interested in psychedelics are very well-intentioned. They want to do good for their community. They want to help with healing. And that includes a lot of the, you know, kind of venture capital people who got into psychedelics over the last few years, only to have the kind of market kind of collapse on it a little bit. But I think it's a long-term game. I think they have huge social value. So there's got to be a way they can fit within an economy. But I'm just not sure where the huge profits are going to come that people think. I do think maybe retreat centers, you know, that's one application. I think there's going to be a need for well-run retreat centers that guarantee safety and are well-evidenced and informed. And many of those will be for-profit clinics until the government funds this on a non-profit level, but that's a ways off. Well, we'll have to see how it unfolds in due time. It's an exciting time for the field of mental health and well-being, but society has never dealt with a drug with such profound effects on the human mind like psychedelics. Although there are many controversies regarding the incorporation of psychedelics, and caution is definitely warranted regarding their use and legalization, there is still quite an exciting promise. 
I hope to see more rigorous clinical trials conducted ethically, safely, and with respect to indigenous knowledge. We're definitely at a critical point for psychedelic research. Definitely. I feel like I've learned so much from my conversations with Elena and Ron, and I hope our listeners enjoy this conversation about the hypo psychedelics as much as I did. Thanks for tuning in to the very first episode of Think Twice. Keep an eye out for the release of the full interview I had with Dr. Ron Shore, as well as other psychedelic research initiatives we have going on here at Queen's. A special thank you to Kat Dobson and Dr. Ron Shore for the help with episode research, and thank you to the outreach program at the Center for Neuroscience Studies at Queen's University. See you next time.